0: Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast, where I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, and I'm so excited that you're here. You are listening to episode number one. Very exciting. In today's episode, I'm sharing an incredible conversation with a dear friend and transformational social impact leader, Robin Walker-Murphy. She's the executive director at Groundswell here in Brooklyn. This conversation is taken from my video series, The Next Normal, which explores issues of strategy, sustainable leadership, and racial equity in the nonprofit sector in the world that will hopefully soon follow COVID. Let's take a listen. Hi, Robin. Hi, Brooke. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yay. Robin is the Executive Director of Groundswell Mural Project in Brooklyn. And Robin, do you want to tell us just a little bit about Groundswell and your amazing work there? Absolutely. So yes, I'm the proud Executive Director at
1: Groundswell. So Groundswell brings together youth artists and community to use the transformative power of public art for social and personal change. So we work in schools, we work in community organizations, and we also have a master studio program. And our goal is to have a long-term relationship with young people. So some of them may end up becoming artists themselves, but our idea is that they are able to think like an artist and to reimagine the world and to help us to see like a brighter future for the world and also for themselves. Personally, we work in all five Murals. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary. We have about 600, you know, murals, all social justice-based murals that we've done over the years. So we're super excited to celebrate and to be able to talk to more people about our process and about our work and our amazing artists and young
0: people that make it happen every year. It's so interesting listening to you give that intro. I mean, you know, you and I are dear friends. I've known yes. years. I've known Groundswell for years, and so I don't often hear the intro to the organization because it doesn't come up in our coffee dates. Right. But in listening to it, I'm struck that what I am excited for us to talk about today is really, really intimately tied to what you guys do every day, this idea of making the world a better place. And, you know, like I said, part of why I'm having these conversations with folks and why I was really excited to talk to you is that COVID and these last few months and the murder of George Floyd and the murder of black people the most recent murder of black people all around the country has really just brought into sharp focus for a lot of people for whom it was not in sharp focus the deep racial and economic inequities in our country and we work in the nonprofit sector and that has historically been the sector <laughs> you know that people turn to for justice, for help, for support in times of need, and we are struggling as a sector. And I've just found myself in all of these conversations recently with you, with a lot of friends and colleagues and peers, about what life after COVID, what it's going to look like, right? What do nonprofits turn into? What does leadership of nonprofits look like? What does the sector look like? And then when you layer on these questions of equity, are we really moving in a more equitable direction? You know, I talked about this last week. All the lives matter statements are, you know, powerfully written, great marketing, but are we actually seeing a shift in equity and what do we need to do? So I just thought you and I could talk about that. Absolutely, absolutely. What are your thoughts about where we are, where your organization is, where nonprofits are? It feels like there's existential threats right now.
1: I mean, it's, I will say that I think we're 21 weeks into this shutdown maybe week 20, end of week 20, going into week 21. That's I'm counting. But just for groundswell, personally, it has been challenging in a lot of ways. And then we've also felt just a wave of generosity. I just want to just, you know, definitely shout out so many great foundations, but definitely on top of my list has been the Brooklyn Community Foundation. I feel like Brooklyn Community Foundation. We shut down the next day. They were just like, here's a plan. And, you know, they just really were able to thoughtfully respond to grantees in a way that helped us to be able to provide like emergency funds for our artists who Mm -hmm. all lost their jobs. Like, you know, in one day, you know, we committed to paying all of our artists their full contracts, even if the projects weren't finished. A lot of our individual donors, some foundations, we were able to, with the help of people like and you know, we were able to get the PPP loan. This fiscal year, like we're actually in a good place. So I try not to get too, of course, you know, you don't have as many expenses. We were able to move all our programming to remote. We still were able to pay 30 young people who are in the middle of their summer program with us right now without SYEP because we... We're trying to get away from having to use SYEP because there was mm-hmm. a way in which we wanted to work with our young people that we wanted to have a little bit more control of the structure of the program. And funding's really
0: vulnerable right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so we already plan to not use it, but you know we we're able to still be able to create an amazingly intentional summer program with our young people. So in that way, I really feel like you're asking me about next year, and I think that we're already seeing that the city funding is going to hit us really hard. We're already knowing that that's going to be a big dent. There's so many question marks. So it's hard sometimes to be of two minds, to be present and in the future, even yeah. though that's the best way to do your work is to be able to be in three spaces at once, right? You're in the moment, you're looking at Those
0: three and spaces aren't back. always quite so uncertain and different from exactly. one another.
1: Exactly. And so when people say, well, what's life after COVID? It is such a great question. And it's like, uh, it will continue to be the guiding question, right? I try to stay rooted in questions and less rooted in answers because answers are so finite. And if you have a really juicy question, the possibilities are endless, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I know that it's going to be tough, and that's what I've been telling people. I like, I this. Like next year is really going to be difficult for us, mm-hmm. and there's nothing really to return to. You know, yes. we have to think about how do we stay true to our mission in response to what our community needs are and how they have shifted. I have to return to, okay, you get as an executive director, you feel the pressure of making sure everybody gets paid. You haven't had to furlough people. You have the pressure of wanting everyone to be able to have their livelihood. And so much of my focus has been on the money issue, which is my role, right? Just to manage that in collaboration with my amazing team and my director of finance. And then there's this other part that I want to make sure that looking future forward that I'm like, our communities are asking us or entrusting us to live out our mission. So while I'm making sure that this financial piece is happening and thinking about money, 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 Mm -hmm. I also have to think about What do our constituents need because of COVID? And so one of the things that we're thinking about, how can art and public art be used as a tool and igniter for social movements so many really amazing social movements that are happening right now amazing organizations who are doing work about immigration rights and police reform abolition defunding around you know food insecurity all those things and really thinking about how are we working with those organizations to offer our work as muralists as public art to help to amplify the messages of organizations that we deeply believe in. How are we working with schools? That's a huge part of what we do. How are we ensuring that young people are still able to get uh, arts education? We believe that arts education is a right that all of our young people should be able to have? Like, how are we talking to people who will support us about now we need you to really help support us in schools? Most of our money in working with schools comes from the city. So we're thinking through that. We're thinking about how we can actually work with the schools to rethink their messaging around COVID-19 and space, you know, the different kinds of space, spatial, space. Exactly, how can we work? So it's kind of like, how can we
0: be of service in this role? So you said so many things. I know, I know. <laughs> no, don't worry, I'm taking, I'm taking <laughs> it. So you mentioned the word possibility. And then you also said, we're not going back to what was there before. And I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of organizations in the last 21, 22 weeks. And sometimes I hear the word possibility. Sometimes I hear more panic. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I hear a sense of loss and a sense of mourning about not going back to what was. And what I think is really interesting about what you just laid out is you seem to really be leaning into this idea of possibility, which is not to say, I don't know if you are also experiencing feelings of loss and mourning, but I definitely hear as well, how can we be of service? How can we use being of service as sort of a beacon or light House through the uncertainty, are the ideas that you just lifted up, are they new for you guys? Are you finding that this is sort of an opportunity to think about new possibilities? I guess what's the balance between sort of leaning into what you guys have always done, what mm-hmm. you see, and sort of new ways of being in the world, new ways of thinking about your work? Because there's also a lot, of, a lot of talk about pivoting.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, you know, bro, it's real hard because I thought you were just going to stop
0: there and be like, it's real. I was like, yeah. That
1: That was an it's real semicolon. And yeah, I think that one of the things that motivates me is that I am not a visual artist. I am a performance artist, but most at core is I am a deep believer in, you know, social justice and, you know, working with young people and believing that art, my way into art is that I believe that art can help to bring about the world that I would like to see. And I would like for my children or child children. Am I having another one? No. To grow up in. I'm like, no, child, no. This, this ain't no high key for the streets, child. No, 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 no. That wasn't no leak. I come to this work as someone who I do this work because I believe this is my contribution to mm. social justice. This yeah. is my contribution to the movement and me in this work. The only reason why we should exist is because we are here to supply something that people really need, right? And so immediately when we closed and we were thinking about next year, designing our programming for next year, it was like, let's talk to the teachers in the schools and say, what would you all need from Groundswell? So we sent out, my school-based staff sent out a survey to our teaching partners to say, like, if you were to work with us next year, Instead of us saying, this is what we want to do with you, how do we fit into what you need from us? You know what I mean? We know we need to be there for our young people, right? So it's just like, how do we still create programming that's relevant to our young people and that we can still be there for them? And the same way with our community partners. So I don't know how this is going to shake down. I don't know how the ability or where some of this funding is going to come from. But what we're trying to move forward is having a plan that feels right for us. And there's definitely, you know, the panic sets in sometimes, but there's so much to do. I think a lot of it has just been being on this kind of hamster wheel of day to day to day to day. And in that sense, it's also been hard to really get deep into a lot of future conversations, because it's like I said, that kind of two modes, but so much of it for me has just been, all right, we gotta keep going every day, being so just intently present, mm-hmm. right in the now, but still feeling good that we're definitely leaning into hope. I will definitely say that we are embracing and leaning into hope because we believe that what we're doing is something that people. Want and need. And the response to people understanding the need for public art right now has been overwhelming. Why do you think that is? I think because so much of this Black Lives Matter movement is messaging. I think the young people who are strategizing and leading this movement are so good at communication. They grew up with that. And then there is the brands, right? The brands understand how do I keep up with this? Like, how do I make sure I'm on the right side of this? They know that there's these people who are about social justice. They also spend money and I want to be on the right side of this. There's the other thing that we have to be super careful and I've tried to be super careful of in the last 21 weeks or whatever is that a lot of this is performative, right? When we start to talk about people and wanting really radical I want to be able to say Black Lives Matter. We know this movement started back in 2007 With yeah. George Zimmerman didn't go to jail for murdering Trayvon Martin. It's been a while. This has been like 13 years of this term. And most of the time people were afraid of it and didn't want to say, you couldn't say Black anything, right? But there is this shift and it's turn. And that's what's been really tricky because I feel like
0: folks kind of understand if I can just say Black Lives Matter. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I have had some really interesting conversations with other, particularly in the arts space, leaders of arts organizations where they are being invited to produce public art. One woman had some young people invited to write a spoken word piece all about Black Lives Matter and they weren't going to pay them. And the response was somewhere along the spectrum of, we never anticipated paying, that's just not how we do things, all the way to sort of indignation that they would even ask. And it made me think of some of the conversations I've had with you about the explosion and interest in public art and the extent to which it is performative as opposed to indicative of true change. And then when I hear those conversations, I'm like, oh... Wait, (laughs) the things that have to change in our sector aren't just about people being more comfortable saying the word black, right? That is great and good. But the underlying power structures have to change. And I'm interested in your perspective on whether you're seeing that. No, not. No. Okay. Nor do I have faith that it
1: will. Yeah. How about
0: that? I mean, I don't. It's, well, because if it's that easy to get credit and a pat on the back for a statement, there's very little incentive to go beyond a statement, right?
1: And I, like I said, I think they're like people have like, oh, that's really kind of all we have to do. And it's kind of also just like the kind of performative aspect. Like, look, I really believe, you know, I was talking to my friend yesterday. She's an incredible anti-racist trainer. She does amazing work. Mm -hmm. And then she has these people reaching out to her now to do this work. And they want it done in a certain way. They just want to be able to say that they did it. They want to be able to write on their grant report that they did, anti-racist work they don't have any intention on really changing because really changing means you have to give up power. There's a paradigm shift that has to happen and no one wants to do anything I should say. A lot of people are not willing to do any structural changes, yeah. any system changes. It's yeah. much easier to paint and to paint, you know, the mayor, we're gonna name every street In New York City, it's going to be a Black Lives Matter street. Well, look at your policies, right? If Black Lives Matter, then if we say that a budget is a moral document, we know that damn budget y'all just passed does not screen that Black Lives Matter in New York City. Right. The way social services got cut, the way that education got cut, the way y'all did the shenanigans when we asked for a $1 billion cut out of a $6 billion police budget. You know, you didn't really do it. And you didn't. so, So that is what we're seeing. And you're right, paying artists. I've had way too many conversations in the last 21 weeks about, oh, we want you to do this amazing project, Black Lives Matter. Here is our budget. This is how much you have to pay our artists. Yeah. And then I'm talking to you right now. I could be doing something else. And yeah. this is how much is my time. This is how yeah. much is. And it's like, well, I know I had to pay for it. And then you see the project get done. And then, you know, a lot of these projects get done and people did not get paid.
0: It calls into question, or not calls into question, but it really lifts up when we say equity, when people talk about this sort of next normal, right, that's being constructed as we go along in the months and years after COVID, when we talk about wanting it to be more equitable, what do we mean, Mm -hmm. right? And some of what we have to mean is structural change and systems and shifts in power. Going back to what you were saying earlier, just describing the kind of work you guys are doing and the direction you're moving in, I personally think that that kind of change starts with meaningful conversation. Throwing statements at one another isn't a conversation, but if you can actually sit down in a room with school principals, with policymakers, with the people who are writing the line items in that budget and have them understand the role of public space, the role that young people play in shaping what justice looks like, right? The kinds of conversations you guys are using public art to start, those are messy and they take longer. But what I think is beautiful about the work that you're describing is it's about starting those conversations. There's a branding element to that and that's powerful, but it marries that with let's actually sit in rooms with some decision makers and muddle through our disagreements. Maybe one of us is going to say something wrong, but we're not going to leave the room until we figure it out, right? Like, those are the conversations.
1: And those are those longer term, like a lot of what has been presented to me and speaking in the eye. Yeah. No, this is like, can we do this in a week? Can you do this in a few days? Right. So even the turnaround time, it's not about any real shift or change. Yeah. And even like, I've had conversations with funders in the last 20 weeks. Some of them have been great. You know, I shouted out Brooklyn Community Foundation. And some of them, I wish they would shift the way that they deal with their grantees' time. I've had people talk me, ask me questions about like, I'm thinking about in response to the current moment. I'm thinking about like this new, what do you think? And spending my time and da, da, da. Yeah. And then it's like, what do I get out of that? Well, that's an equity issue too. That's another shift in power. Because who says no to talking on the phone with the funder about something, right? right? You know what I mean? Who's going to say no to that? Like, so I just helped you write your new grant. you just going to, I'm going to see my ID in a couple of months, yes. right? So- How do these shifts and dynamics change? I've had people, could you send me an LOI for something that you want to do based on this? And I spent a whole weekend working and heard nothing about it, right? So the way in which those power dynamics actually need to shift as well, the actual work of making change is really hard. I don't think that it's going to be... I don't think it's going to last really long. I do think this, for some people, this is a moment, right? There's a moment and the moment will pass. There's many of us who this is every day. We'll still work through it. I think it's really important to figure out how you can leverage it while it happens, right? So when the moment is here, how do you leverage it to get what you need? These young people who are marching on the street and who people are, you know, some people are happy that they're doing it. Some people are like these disruptors. A lot of people are getting promotions right now based on the work happening on the street. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. All this work, this movement work that's happening, yeah. there are companies, organizations who are now, well, let me get this black person in this role. Or let me get, based on what these babies are doing outside. Yeah. And so the people who are also seeing their promotions happen need to be thanking Those foot soldiers on the street, because that's always what happens to kind of shut down or to kind of respond to this. Mm -hmm. A lot of us get promoted, get more jobs, get more contracts based on what happens on the street. So it's always important for us to remember the connectivity, right, that happens.
0: You know what's interesting? And I want to talk a little bit about some of the points about leadership you were making and sort of sitting in these dual spaces and leveraging this moment. But what you just said made me realize that. I wanted to say kids, but they're in their 20s. The young people marching were in elementary school when Trayvon was wow. okay. killed. Their entire world, my oldest son is six. So you have people out in the streets now who were his age. Wow, that's wild. You don't remember a world where we weren't grappling in some very meaningful way with the things there are in the street marching around. And it made me think of a podcast, you know, I love podcasts, that I heard where some of the young people marching in Hong Kong were talking about how they were born and grew up. The only world they knew involved debates around and grappling with questions of yeah. citizenship. And so these young people out in the streets, of course, they're the ones leading this movement. Of course. They have the energy and they are marching well beyond the number of days and weeks people thought would be sustained. This is their world. This is the only world they know. These are the only issues they've known. And I wonder, leaning into hope, if some of the cynicism that I have at my age about there are these moments and then they pass, if maybe this spark can actually turn into a flame because the people sort of stoking the flame, the younger people, don't know an alternative. They don't know to go backwards. They don't know to let the spark go out. This is their life. And so maybe that energy, and they're 20, so they they have more energy, right? And so maybe they will continue to push us as individuals to have some of those tough
1: I absolutely, these young people are not going to slow down. Yeah. I follow a lot of the movement for Black Lives and Mm -hmm. a lot of that is like, you know, just the strategizers are, like, young Black women. I mean, the strategies that they're implementing are brilliant, and they're taking from the past, and they're updating it for themselves. Like, I think that movement for Black lives is just going to continue to get stronger. I think this kind of phase of, like, I guess my cynicism comes in is, how long will white people be as responsive as they are to me right now? Being like, Let's talk about you heading up a black led organization, like their willingness to want to engage on that or when we're there, because we've already heard, and like, oh, this is so tiring, and the fatigue of that for white people, like, how long will they be wanting to engage in this? But the young people, it's not gonna slow down anytime soon. They're gonna continue to push. Mm-hmm. I think it'll just morph into something different. Yes. I think, in terms of being a nonprofit leader, Like, and I've never received as much outreach from people who want to, how can I help? So I'm like leveraging this moment, like, all right, this is how you can help. This is, you know, what we do. And yes, you can support. And I'm really upset I missed out on Mackenzie Scott. I was like, no one I know knows Mackenzie Scott. Jeff Bezos, ex-wife, who just gave, I don't know how many, a billion dollars. I'm like, how did I not get on that train? Like, what? who did I need to be? Like, you know, this is what I'm talking about, because you have to be able to leverage it. As long as I know where I'm at, and I'm not confused on where I'm at, I can work around it. You talked earlier about, I
0: mean, this idea of rooting where you are in service. I mean, I, the organization I ran, I started, and the first few years was all about clarifying the need, right? Anytime you are building an institution, you are building a movement, it is in response to a need. And this is an interesting moment where organizations that have existed for two and a half decades have a real opportunity to go back to what is the need that we are addressing, right? And I heard you speak directly to that, and that's an anchor So that as you are having to sit in the future and the past and the present and leverage this moment and sort of respond to the tyranny of the immediate and also find some moments to pause and think strategically while you're doing all of that as a leader, it sounds like you are trying to ground yourself in what's the need?
1: People are much more willing to talk about social justice now. Like when I was first starting out, like as a program director back in 2004, what people didn't understand, like, no, I actually am a social justice educator because it's rooted in love. No one talks about that except for people who do the work. Mm -hmm. It's really about I love love. People so much. I am clearly a woman of African descent. I love all people. I love my people. I love black people. And I love justice. I cannot stand injustice, right? I don't love oppression, right? I love liberation. All of it. If we go to the whole kind of philosophical thing that there's only two emotions there's love and there's fear. Everything else that's not love is fear. Social justice is love, it is love activated. Right. It is. So when I'm thinking about people like, oh, our murals are beautiful. Our murals are beautiful. The process is even more beautiful. And we just had young people do the process share yesterday, talked about what they learned and what they value. And they kept coming back. I feel cared for here. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is like my second home. Like that is why we do the work. You all see the mural. Right. But what we're doing is cultivating these loving spaces, yeah. not saying they don't have loving spaces anywhere else. But what we know is that young people are world. Right. You know, people are oh, you know, the young people, you know, you know, black and brown youth, they have an achievement gap. They, have a, they don't have that. They have a connection gap. They have a network gap. Yeah. Their network is the gap. Right. They don't know the right people they need to know. And so we need to be able to fill that gap and to supplement whatever they're not getting in schools to make sure that we're providing it. And what the public sees are these beautiful, wonderful murals. Right. But it's like when that is your center, that we are here to love young people and love community, it's motivating, right? It's a motivating factor. Like I said, people hear social justice, they have their own connotation, but it really is rooted in love. That is where we just all want to be free. And when you come from a people that has never experienced true freedom, it is a constant march toward a reality that you have never seen. And so that's also where the hope comes from. When we ignite a radical imagination, you have to radically... He reimagined what this world can be and work every day to figure out how to get closer to that. And so there was this talk about, like, I was watching Oprah. She was interviewing the guy who did the happiness project. And he talked about the difference between happiness and yes. joy and yeah. happiness being circumstantial and joy being something that's always within you. And at first I didn't understand that. I was like, what? And I thought about it. I was like, oh as a Black person, I definitely know joy. Like, Because if we were looking for our circumstances to make us happy, we would just be a puddle on the floor. But to be able to, keep, we have tapped into that joy. So I bring that to my leadership practice, right? Mm-hmm. I think about like, okay, how do I constantly remind our staff why we do this work? Because if you don't have that grounding, If you don't love justice and black and brown people and art, ain't nothing I can do to make you stay here. Because that usually is sometimes the only thing that can keep you motivated and going. It is that passion and that love for believing that you are helping to make the world better for. You and that's the other thing because when people especially going back to this black lives matter stuff, it's like oh I'm gonna do this for you I'm gonna help you all like no 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 if You're you don't have skin in this, in this game in and game. you don't understand why you need to be concerned about justice and fighting for just house effect you don't even come and rock with me because had you understood it we wouldn't have this fool in the White House in the first place because this house has always been on fire. And now the fire has come to your porch. And now you're concerned. Had you listened a long time ago, you wouldn't be in this situation.
0: Um, uh, I can't add <laughs> anything that I was getting goosebumps. I just love you, Robin. I love, I love you, Brooke. And that's what we need people like you, Brooke. It's like, I'd
1: be all over the place. and I'd be needing the radical strategy of Brooke. The radical strategist. Well, that's why we work well together. The person who can strategize freedom. Like, you're know, like the freedom <laughs> strategist. That's my new title for you, Brooke. Brooke,
0: freedom strategist. Oh, I love it. I'm going to get a t-shirt and a mug. <laughs> Liberation strategist. <laughs> I love it. Liberation strategist. I love that. Yes. I wanted to have an honest conversation about... What's coming about the next normal, and that's what this is. This was great, rooted in love, and if we can continue to tap into joy, then perhaps this moment will actually lead to some structural change. I want to be hopeful. <laughs> I do. I want you to be. be. It's want- going to
1: be hard. And the thing about it is, some things are going to burn to the ground, and maybe they should. And that's the thing. It's like some things are going to burn to the ground. And I'm willing to say if groundswell isn't what the people need, then you know we got to figure out like, do we do something else? Or we still need to be here, but we're going to fight every day because I truly, truly believe that we are part of what is coming next. And like I said, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I do know that we are a part of the newness of it all. You know what I mean? My job is to just figure out how to stay open. And the thing about it is this, the resources, right? What I'm really hoping is that people understand the importance of funding and helping to sustain small to mid-sized organizations run by folks of color. Unrestricted funding. It wasn't that interesting interesting how when everything shut down, I loved it. All the funders were just like, do whatever you want. I'm like, could you have said
0: that anyway, though? Well, it's interesting. I mean, talking with some funders, going back to the question of like, are there real structural changes happening? That's actually one place where I am really hopeful. I have had so many more conversations with funders in the last three months where they just internally are working with themselves, with their boards to say, if we were able to relatively quickly and some were, you know, faster than others yeah. turn around and say, here's unrestricted money, here's money for an additional year, you, you know, call our grantees, tell us what you need, work in more genuine partnership with our grantees. Yeah. If we could do that, in May of 2020, it means we can do it in May of 2021 and May of 2022, right? It means that it is possible for us to function in this way. And I think there are some very interesting conversations happening in philanthropy about how are we not understanding our own power? Where are we getting this wrong. And that's actually really been interesting to see.
1: I know you have the plug on them. And this is something you can educate me about because I'm coming from like the side of like, what would be hard about people not putting on their website by invitation only. And then it's like, if you want going to be that foundation, that's like by invitation, which is elitist to me, but could you at least say and with an asterisk, and this is how you can be invited? You know, like, there has to be some demystification of that. Yeah. You know, there's something about funding. And so sometimes with
0: foundations, like you got to wait to get the golden ticket. Information is a form of power, right? And so holding the information versus sharing the information, being transparent, those are ways of shifting power also. And, you know, I'll be honest, I think some of that has to come from people outside of philanthropy, right? Grantees calling the program officers that they do know, that they are comfortable with, and maybe even some that they aren't, and saying what you just said. In the same way that you are trying to be sort of open to what is needed, I do think that there are more foundations than I've ever seen that in their own way are more open than they've been. That's so good to Listening to their grantees to having a grantee call and saying, look, this proposal, this RFP is going to take me 13 hours. I could just send you a page and you will have all the information you need, right? Now, that is not to say that the process will change overnight, right? but I have talked to probably a dozen or more organizations where the EDs just got so fed up talking about like, I have to strategize, I have to raise my, I don't have 13 hours for this proposal, I'm just going to call my program officer and say, what else can we work out? Oh, I him.
1: I love that. I do feel a shift in terms of us feeling more able to ask for what we need. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just yeah. being, like, I was talking to someone on my staff, I was just like, we're just going to ask for this increase because what they're going to say, no, we ain't going to get in trouble. Exactly. Like we have to
0: be bold and just they say no, then we just, all right. No, that's <laughs> exactly right. Be brave. And I think that this is, Probably a little harsh, but power is either given or taken. That's the truth, though, Brooke. So either institutions do the work to give up some of their power and or other institutions, other people have to call, reach out, write, say, here's the part I'm going to take. And to me, that power dynamic that exists between a lot of program foundations and individuals or foundations and grantees some of that shift comes from grantees calling and saying, I don't have anything to lose by saying, actually, I'm not going to do it the way that you've asked me to do it. I can't. It's bad for my organization. Mm-hmm. That's power too. And it'll be interesting to see in the coming months how much more of that happens, particularly now that we're heading out of this emergency phase where foundations yeah. are like, oh my God, we'll do anything. Now we're going to start to see what we settle back into. You know? Yeah.
1: And just for me, I know just even shifting my mindset, from being a grantee to being a partner.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's a mindset shift for you and, and the foundation. Absolutely. I love it.
1: Right. Like, this is my mission. This is your mission. This is how we help each other as
0: far as be like, more, please. You know what I mean? It's just like- it's individual donors too. Exactly. It's, I am creating change in the world. Do you want to invest in this change? Right. We're going to be partners. Your role will be a funding role. My role will be an execution role. And those roles are both important. And right. We'll sort of put it together, right? Yeah. No, I think there's some real shifts coming. Well, thank you so much, Robin. Thank you for, for inviting me. It's such an honor to be invited to talk to you. I always love talking to you about this stuff. And I know I will talk to you again really soon. Okay, well, go back and
1: keep being brilliant all the time so you can help us because you be helping us, Brooke.
0: <laughs> you can go on and do all the amazing, brilliant things you're doing. And it was just actually, as a side note, really wonderful to hear just more in depth about, you know, what you're over there building and doing. And you're an incredible leader, Robin. And Yay. it's just been great giving you an opportunity to share some of your wisdom with the rest of us.
1: Yay. Thank you so much, Brooke. I Talk to you soon.
0: Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. So that was a great conversation. I just always love talking to Robin. Thank you all for joining me this week. You can learn more about Groundswell at www.groundswell.nyc. And you can find links to the video series, The Next Normal, and to the other resources that we mentioned in the episode in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would love for you to subscribe on Apple or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts and to share with your friends and colleagues. And one last exciting announcement. If you're the executive director of a nonprofit under a million dollars and you are looking to scale to between 1 million and 2 million in the next year, I'm excited to announce the launch of my new coaching program the Nonprofit Impact Accelerator. You can head on over to brickrichiebabbage.com slash accelerator to learn more. That's all for now. Have a great week and I will see you back here next week for more Mastermind.